Hey, come here and give me a hug. That's great. Won't be long that those guys from the band will be trying to get you to play fiddle in the deal. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. You know the devil went down to Georgia? <laughs> That's good. Get him out of Kansas City. <clears throat> well, today uh, we'll be back in the book of Proverbs. I, I can't speak for you. I, I've really enjoyed the book of Proverbs. I, I am enjoying the book of Proverbs. I think it was a good choice that uh, we decided to go through this book. And uh, today we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 9, and uh, we'll talk about the first six verses. And yet here again in Proverbs chapter 9, we have, a, we have a, another uh, great chapter in the book of Proverbs, and uh, it'll lay out for us some key doctrines and elements in the Bible that we must have if we're going to ever get what the book of Proverbs is focused on, and that is God's, God's wisdom. You know, when it comes to the Bible and learning the Bible, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. I should say there's all kinds of wrong ways, but there's only one right way. And uh, very few people ever find that uh, right way, but when you do, uh, and you get the Bible, and you learn the Bible, it'll change everything about you. But to learn the Bible, I think one of the things that people have to understand is that there are some fundamental doctrines that you must have in place uh, as to your understanding to get the Bible. And when you get them down, and you learn them, and you understand them, then as far as the structure and putting the Bible together and the picture of the Bible together, uh, it will begin to take shape for you. And that's really what the Bible is. The Bible is nothing more than a gigantic picture of what God is doing. We have a chart on the wall over there that probably the best chart that I've ever found. And uh, uh, we sell them in the bookstore. Not that big, but uh, uh, that chart represents the whole Bible. That is taking the Bible and drawing it out and putting it into a uh, an understandable picture form of everything in the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 22. And uh, well, when you get that down and you understand that the Bible is a picture of what God is doing, most people get the idea that the Bible is a record of what man's doing down through history in his, in his search for God. And that's not true, not true at all. But rather the Bible is the book that records what God is doing in his search for man. Bible says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. God has a plan, and that plan in the Bible unfolds into a gigantic picture, much like that chart, only in much more detail of exactly what God is trying to do and God is trying to accomplish down through history. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked uh, briefly about God's three distinct plans in the Bible. Now, in the Bible, there are certain numbers that are associated with God in certain ways. Uh, we know that number seven is the number of perfection. God seemingly always does things by sevens. But the number three in the Bible will always be in reference to something being complete. And when you want <clears throat> the complete picture of something, you've got to have three parts to it. Time is past, present, and future. Um, I mean, the Bible, God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I mean, everything breaks down along those lines. So God has three distinct plans throughout the Bible within that picture. And getting the fundamentals down about that is the key of understanding what God is doing. First of all, God has a plan for the universe. And we've talked about this many, many times on some of our more detailed studies that we do on Thursday night or even on New Year's Eve. But we know from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, it talks about of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. 
It's going to accomplish God's purpose when God finally puts it all into play, and it's going to go on forever. I, I preached Sharon's mom's funeral yesterday, and I, I, one of the things I try to do is get people to come to a reality of where life is at. And I told them, I said, you know what? We come to funerals and we think that because somebody has died that that's the end. But the truth of the matter is when you and I die, it's not the end. It's only the beginning. And it's the beginning of what God's plan is going to unfold in eternity one way or the other, heaven or hell, and however it lands where you've done with the Lord Jesus Christ. But God has a plan for the universe. Then the second plan is God has a plan for the earth. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 18 says that the earth was created to be inhabited. And the earth now is in the universe. So you see how the plans are connected. They're three separate plans, but they are connected not only to each other, but they're connected to me and you. Well, God has a plan for the universe. He, there was a purpose why he created all the galaxies, all the nebulas, and all the solar systems, and all the planets that he's done out there. Right now, as we speak, NASA in their programs down there to find uh, exoplanets, which are planets that are outside our solar system. Last time I checked, I think they had found over 800 of them that are out there outside our, our structure of our solar system, way out in the universe someplace, and it's only tip of the iceberg. There's millions and millions, but they're there for a reason. God has a plan for the universe. God has a plan for the earth. The reason why God, out of everything that he created, only chose to put life on one planet. And the big question that the scientists have out there is their intelligent life in outer space. I never get that far. I'm not sure there's really intelligent life on planet Earth yet at this point. But what we find out here is the fact that God had a plan for the Earth. And, he, and then the third part of the plan is God has a plan for you and me. And just as the God had created the universe, put the Earth in the universe, He put you and me on this planet. God has something that He wants you and I to accomplish. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, that in the ages to come, God might show the exceedingly riches of his grace in his kingdom toward us through Jesus Christ. He has something he wants to accomplish with your life and my life on this earth, while this earth is in the universe. And as I told you a couple of weeks ago, Proverbs is that book of instruction for us. I showed you a couple of weeks ago how that the key word instruction is found 33 times in your Bible, 25 of those times in the book of Proverbs. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the book of Proverbs for you and for me is our book of instruction. This is why we're studying it, why we're spending the time to go through it. And that's how when we get it, when we get the Bible down, then we begin to see all of the aspects of God's overall plan. The picture begins to take shape. Everything comes into focus. Not only do you understand what God is doing in the universe and the earth, but now most important, you realize how you and I play into this and what our part is as God's child. Now, our text this morning is going to be in Proverbs chapter 9, and I want to pick it up in verse 1, and I'll read it on down through here. Here's what it says. It says, wisdom hath builded her house. <clears throat> she has hewn out her seven pillars. She hath killed her beasts. She hath mingled her wine. She hath also furnished her table. She has set forth her maidens. She crieth upon the highest places of the city. 
Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of of the wine which I have mingled. Forsake the foolish, and live, and go in the way of understanding. Now, Father, we thank and praise you today for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you very much. And we come to you today, Father, from your word to help us to grow and to get uh, the things that you have for us. Lord, uh, we know that uh, you have a plan for us. We also know that fulfilling that plan uh, is, uh, is, is vital uh, to our life. And we know that plan is not just simply to get married and raise a family. We know that plan is not just to get an education or get a good job or make lots of money or to buy a house. Those things are important for sure, but Lord, we know that first and foremost, the number one thing for our life is to find out what God has saved us for, called us to do, and then to find out through God's Word, through His instructions, what He wants us to do. And help us today as we come to Your Word. Help us to grow, help us to learn, help us to become more like You in all that we do. And we'll be careful to give You the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, as sake we ask it, amen. Now, the, the context here is as uh, wisdom hath builded her house. Now, we have already learned from our previous times in the Bible that there's three applications to all the different scriptures you're going to find. We know that there's going to be a historical application, and we know that that's going to relate to something back in history. In this case, Solomon writing to his son. We know also that there's going to be an inspirational application, and that has to do with the practical thing for your life and my life, that I'm going to get out of this to help me through my daily walk with God. But then there's going to be a doctrinal application, and that doctrinal application will be something dealing with uh, Christ in a prophetic way, something that Christ is going to do, maybe with you, maybe with Israel, uh, but it's going to deal with something uh, that God wants to do in in a very... A, a doctrinal way of in, in, in a prophecy in our lives of what we want to accomplish. And in this passage, you have a reference to three my primary applications built around my house. Now, when he says my house, first of all, historically, let's talk about it for a moment. My house historically will be Israel as God's house. And you want to go to Acts chapter 2. You don't have to turn to it right now. Just write it down. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. It talks about the whole house of Israel. Find it all the way through the Bible. But the reference of the term will go uh, back to God's house at Jerusalem in particular, the temple that God made. That was the key to the house of Israel, which was God's house. So historically, when he talks about uh, wisdom hath built uh, her house, historically he's talking about Solomon's house, the temple what was built. Now, the inspirational application, my house, will be literally my house and your house. If you're married and you have kids, you're in charge of your home. That's your house. And uh, so in an inspirational application, it, it talks about how that as a father, I'm responsible as a father, as a parent with my children to make sure they get the right instructions and get everything that God wants for them to have. That's the inspirational. Now, the doctrinal my house. It'll be my body in a spiritual sense of what God is going to do with me. Uh, second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, For we know that if our earthly house, your body, 
if our earthly house were, uh, were dissolved, gone. We have a body of God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. Now, that's your soulish body. You see, that's the doctrinal application. Now, uh, all three applications, Israel, historically, a mom and a dad, inspirationally, or your individual growth as your body being God's temple, doctrinally, we are to build our respective house with the wisdom of God, by the instruction of God. But the last two will certainly directly be to us as God's people. The main goal of any church, or should be, the main goal of any church should be to build strong families that work and minister together. That ought to be the job of the church. And I know and understand that I have no magic formula to make you do what's right. I don't have any magic formula that's going to make you uh, choose the Bible and vest your life in the Bible versus somebody who chooses not to. That's not the job of the church. The job of the church is to motivate you, to preach to you the Word of God, and then to give you the tools. Lay them out on the table. Show you what the plan of God is. Show you what God has done for you. Help you understand the price that was paid on Calvary's cross And then you taking that into your heart, wanting to give back to God after he has given to you. And then all I do, all we do, all this church does, all any church should do, lay the tools on a table. You pick up the tool and you go to work. It's just that simple. You do that through the Bible in general, through the book of Proverbs as we're studying it in particular, by putting God's principles in your life and then following them faithfully and getting God's wisdom, and getting God's instruction. This house in Proverbs chapter 9 is like a structure that is being built that will stand the test of time. So it needs a cornerstone because all buildings have to start with a cornerstone that everything else is tied into in the building. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42 The cornerstone of your life and my life needs to be the Lord Jesus Christ. It needs to be built on a strong, solid rock. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, you find the story of a man who, uh, two men. One's a wise man, one's a foolish man. One builds his house on a rock, one builds his house on the sand. When the wind comes and the tornadoes come and the tsunamis come and all the things of life comes, the guy who built his house on the sand does much damage. It gets destroyed. It collapses. It cannot stand the test of the wind and the rain and all the things that come on. But the man who built his house on the rock, the man who built his house on a rock, it stands up to the wind, to the weather, to the rain, and all the elements of this world that want to rock your world and destroy your house. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 10, uh, 10, verse 4, that that rock was Christ. So it needs a cornerstone. It needs to be built on a rock. And it needs a sure foundation. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, no other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He becomes that foundation. But as you should be well aware of by now, from our other times in the Bible and coming through all that we do, you only build a strong family 
by building strong individual Christians, taking moms and dads, taking your children, helping you build that strong house by simply giving you the tools. But in doing so, giving you a sure foundation. And that's simply uh, our job here at this church and should be the job of any church. Now look at the second part of verse 1. Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. Now I guess over the years I've been asked about that so many times I can't even remember. What are these seven pillars? You've asked me that many, many times. So you know if you've been around here any length of time, what was it, five Six, eight months ago, uh, we took a Thursday night and I completely laid out the seven pillars for you as to what they are in the Bible. It's on our website if you want to study it up after we're done here. I won't have time to go through it all again this morning, but you know what they are now. And several months ago, I brought you through all seven of these and showed you how that they are the seven key doctrines by which all the rest of the Bible is built on. And the Bible says they're hewn out of a rock. And that Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, that that rock is God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. We know now uh, these seven pillars that all the world and all the Bible is built on. If you would take the time, And this was my purpose in doing it through Thursday night, so I don't know how many of you caught it. If you would take the time to thoroughly understand each one of these seven pillars, that you could go backwards and forwards with it, upside down, explain it in your sleep, you cannot get these seven pillars down because within these seven pillars contains everything, everything in the picture of God of what he's doing. And I showed you that the first one was the kingdom of God. And I showed you that the second one was the kingdom of heaven. And I showed you how that everything in the Bible divides itself up around these two kingdoms. Most preachers, most churches, most Christians think they're the same. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I know they're not the same because, I don't know, they're not spelled the same. That would lead me to be suspect that they are the same, but that might just be me. When you come through the Bible, you'll find they're not the same. They represent two different aspects. Then the third one was the doctrine of Christ. That's the central person in the Bible that you really need to understand all that he did. The fourth one was the doctrine of creation. That's the foundation of it all. Your Bible starts in eternity and it ends in eternity. And everything that about it is found in the creation, the doctrine of creation. Then we found the fifth one was the doctrine of the nation of Israel. Israel was God's uh, identity in the Old Testament. The sixth one was the doctrine of the New Testament church. That's God's identity in the New Testament. And, of course, the seventh one was the theme of the Bible, which is the theme from Genesis to Revelation, which is the doctrine of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in your Bible, everything in your Bible will come down on these seven major doctrines, the pillars. Now, take your Bible for a moment and turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I want to show you. I didn't give you this, I don't think, when we went through it, but I want to give it to you now. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. He says this, He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among the princes, 
and to make them, here it comes, and to make them inherit the throne, throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness for by strength shall no man prevail. Now you see that? That Bible says that the whole world, not only all of the Bible, but everything on planet earth and in planet earth and life on planet earth goes back to those pillars of the Lord that he has set the world upon them. Now let me clear something up for you because I hear this all the time and I, it just drives me nuts. And I, I get, the older I get, the more patient I become and the more my teeth fall out, the less I can bite you. But there'll never be a time I won't be able to gum you to death. So just be with me here for a while. The standard church teaching is this, and I get it, but it drives me crazy. I don't know how many times I've heard this. I've heard some pastor or some Christian tell another Christian, now the deep things of the Bible, you don't want to go too deep into the Bible because, you know, the deep things of the Bible, uh, they, they, they will not replace the practical things of the Bible. The deep things of the Bible won't help you get through what you've got to face tomorrow. Now, I understand what they're saying, but that, I want to tell you, that's simply not true. And so they'll tell you, so don't spend time getting the deep things, but rather just the practical things. And that's all you need to do. Now, that sounds nice, and it sounds really spiritual. But it's not very biblical when you put it to the test of the Word of God. I got to be honest, most pastors and most Christians will tell you that because they don't know anything about the Bible themselves. So they don't want you learning more about the Bible than they do. So it's a thing where they try to keep you down and try to discourage you in learning the deep things of the Bible. Now, I I hear that all the time. And there's a couple of things that I want to say about that. Many times, a person that takes that position, and you might as well understand this, They take that position simply because they're too lazy to really study the Bible themselves. They don't want to take the time it takes to get into the Bible. So it's a good excuse. It sounds like a spiritual excuse. You're not saying, I don't really care about the Bible and I'm too lazy. It sounds a lot better to get up there and say, well, you know what? The the deep things of the Bible are okay, but what's going to get you through life tomorrow are going to be the practical things. You don't want to become so heavenly-minded that you become no, no earthly good, as I've heard it said many, many times. Let me tell you something. To really learn the Bible, it will be a labor of love. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2, chapter, uh, t- chapter 2, verse 15, you have to be a workman. Proverbs 15, 28 says, the heart of the righteous studieth to answer. But the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. Christians are a dime a dozen today who simply want an entry-level relationship with God in the Bible with no real effect made to get into the depth of the Word of God. Now, I just gave you 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. And I'm going to show you how that that verse goes in stark contrast to everything those people tell you. But I'm also going to tell you that those jaybirds wouldn't know where 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 was if somebody put a gun to their head. Now look what it said. It said, the pillar of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon it. Now that's some pretty deep stuff. If you ain't figured it out yet, that's the same exact pillars we're talking about in Proverbs chapter 9. 
Yet look at verse 9 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. He will keep the feet of his saints. Now that's your everyday walk. He says, you understanding that the pillars of the earth and the earth is held up by these seven pillars and all the things that go along with it, that you knowing that will, he will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in the darkness for, the, for by strength shall no man prevail. Now there's a verse that says when you get the deep things of God, it keeps your feet from the wicked man. We've studied the wicked man in Proverbs. And when you go down in verse 10, it says it'll keep him, keep you from the adversary. That's the devil, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Your adversary, the devil, goeth about as a roaring lion, seeking who may devour. He's now telling you that the understanding the pillars, understanding the depth of the Bible, will keep your feet from the adversary and from the wicked. And here's the issue. Every practical thing in the Bible will go back to a deeper doctrine in the Bible. I don't know what people think about the Bible today. You don't have the deep things over here and then the real shallow practical things over here. They're connected together. It's the nice, easy, practical things that we all love, the milk of the Bible, will always be anchored in the deep things of the Word of God. If you don't understand the deep doctrines behind the simple principles, you're going to get messed up as sure as the sun comes up tomorrow, and people do all the time. The deal with the life's issues, and we're going to have to deal with them. You're going to have to deal with issues in your marriage. You're going to have to deal with issues with your children. You'll have to deal with issues within your family or your personal areas of your life. You need a depth to you. You need to understand the doctrine behind the practical things that you're doing because they are anchored together. And it only comes from getting into the Word of God and learning the Word of God and learning the Bible that gives you the practical things in the Word. I mean, come on. You can teach a monkey to turn a crank on an organ for the organ grinder. But that doesn't mean that he understands the theory behind music. And as a Christian, you can mimic practical Christianity all you want, but that doesn't mean you understand the doctrine behind it till you get the depth of the Bible. Now, please, I know some of you are probably angry now because you're saying, well, you're, 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 you're comparing those kind of Christians to monkeys. No, I am not. I'd never do that to monkeys. <laughs> Under any circumstances. I mean, you can mimic or practice Christianity, but you'll never understand it till the doctrine behind it that lays it out in the depth of the Bible. It's just plain and simple. I mean, you say, well, I'm saved. Yeah, you're saved, but you could never explain what happened inside your body the day you got saved. Well, I believe that once saved, always saved. Yes, but you couldn't go to the anchoring verses that show you why you can never lose what God gave you. I've had people all their lives that were that way, and when it came to their own kids, they couldn't even win their own kids to Christ. They understood salvation, but there was nothing, no depth to them to grasp the great principles. Now, let's look at verse 2 and 3 here. And what follows here is a picture of, of the wisdom of God, this is what we've been talking about in Proverbs, the wisdom of God moving down through the Bible. 
in the person of Christ. And remember from our chapter 8, we got into who Christ was and all those things. Well, now we're going to see him moving down through the Bible and history in the New Testament nation of Israel and then into the New Testament body of Christ. So bear with me. And you'll probably want to get these in your Bible as you're coming down through here so you'll have it. But look at verse 2. She hath killed her beasts. She hath mingled her wine. She hath also furnished her table. Now, there's three distinct things here we want to look at. And this shows you that God, through the person of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, moving down through the Bible. She hath killed her beast. Now, that'll be a reference to the Old Testament from Adam up to the law, where you know as well as I did, they killed her beast. They offered the animals of sacrifice as part of the atonement of man's sin. We know that the blood of bulls of sacrifice, uh, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin, couldn't pay for sin. It was only a temporary covering, but that's what they did. They took Adam, 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 Adam from Adam on up. They took God took something innocent and required the innocent blood to cover the, the sin of somebody else. And it happened before the law. Abel did it, Job did it, Noah did it. And then it happened during the law under Moses in in Leviticus chapter 11. He gives you the animals that you can do it with. And in the book of Hebrews, he tells us in the Old Testament that that they made animal sacrifices. We know that. And they made them to God for temporary covering of their sins. But he also tells us in the book of Hebrews that the theme of the book of Hebrews is something has come which is better. And the whole book of Hebrews is a comparing of the Old Testament stuff under the law and the New Testament stuff under Jesus Christ and showing you that the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. And when you get into Hebrews chapter 10 down through there, and uh, he lays out that throughout the Old Testament, yes, they killed their beast. They took their animals, they sacrificed them, and they offered that sacrifice to God. But now he's saying in the New Testament, when Christ came, That was a better sacrifice. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, it tells us that Christ's death on the cross put an end to the killing of the beast. So when he says she hath killed her beast, he's making a reference to the Old Testament. Now watch this, verse 2, the middle part of the verse. She hath mingled her wine. Now that'll be a reference to the first coming of Christ. Wine in the Bible, we know, is a type of blood. The greatest chapter in the Bible on that will be Deuteronomy chapter 32, where it tells you that there's two wines. And that one wine that is the new wine in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 14, is called the pure blood of the grape. The reason why when any church or this church anyhow takes communion, when we take communion, we take grape juice, fruit of the vine, because it represents in the Bible the blood of Christ. When Christ showed up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, do you know what he, the Bible says he did? Well, the Bible gives the appearance and shows you very clearly that what he did is he mingled the blood, the wine of God, Acts 20, 28. When Christ shows up, he has God's blood in his veins. It's sinless blood. And what God did at the first coming of Christ when he showed up, he mingled the blood of God with the human birth of man and the human flesh, the God-man, through a sinless birth. Now, let me show you this in a little, little, a little clearer manner. When Christ is on the cross, and you'll find this in John chapter 19, verse 35, 
We know what happens in that verse. A Roman soldier picks up a spear and he throws it up there and the Bible says the spear goes in his side. And the Bible says when the spear goes in his side, the water and blood came out. Now the average surface Christian just reads that and says, oh, ho-hum, water and blood. I know what the standard teaching is in Bible college. You have a sack of water around your heart, and it says that they punched that sack, and the water and the blood came out, and everybody goes, ooh, that was really nice. More to it than that. You got to read on. The Bible says when that spear went in his side and water and blood came out, the Bible says that John says in that verse that that testified of something. Now, I don't know about you, but if I saw that and read that, and it said it would testify of something... I'd want to find out what it testified to. You see, you get the surface, but that all you get the doctrinal meat behind it that makes the practical thing mean so much more. Now turn over to 1 John chapter 5. I want to show you what this signified. I want to show you what John means when he says, when he saw that water and blood, that it testified of something. We want to go back to the epistle of 1 John chapter 5, and we'll pick it up in verse 5 through 9. Here's what he says. Who is he that cometh, that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by, oh, here it comes, water and blood. See, he came by water and blood, So when he's on that cross, now you know now that that water is not baptism. I hope you know that. That water is not John's baptism when he was baptized. That water is a physical birth that he had. And the Bible tells us that he had God's blood in his veins in Acts 20, 28. So the Bible says, here is he that cometh by water and blood. So when he put that spear in his side... Water and blood comes out. John sees it, and John says, that testified to something. Let me show you what it testified to. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father and the Word and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, And these three are one. Now see that? There's three that bear record in heaven. And then there's three that bear record on the earth. That's the first coming of Christ. See what it said? It said the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his son. Then this thing witnesses to something. And in 1 John chapter 5, he says what it means, uh, what it testified to. He says, he says, Christ, when he came, he came by the Holy Spirit of God. So he had a sinless spirit, one. Two, he came by the blood, Acts 20, 28, God's blood. So he had a sinless nature. And he came from the water, <clears throat> a human physical birth through Mary, yet without sin. So he had a sinless birth. Christ is threefold nature is he has a sinless spirit, a sinless nature, and a sinless birth. Do you know what God did at the first coming of Christ? He mingled the blood of God with the human flesh of man. That's what he did. That's why the first miracle in the Old Testament had to do with water being turned to blood, and the first miracle in the New Testament had to do with water being turned to wine. But you've got to get into the deep things to see that. 
Oh, it's an incredible concept. Now, I don't want you to miss this. You ever notice that there's two minglings of the wine in the Bible at the first coming of Christ? Now, you don't get that by being a milkman. Say, what's a milkman? It's just somebody that just has the milk in the Bible. They're milkmen. They're always running around clanging a little bottle, but they never get anything. They just they deliver milk. You ever see that there was two minglings of the wine in the Bible at the first coming of Christ? When he's on the cross in Mark chapter 15, verse 23, Jesus is on the cross. They bring him wine mingled with what? Myrrh. Wine mingled with myrrh. They bring him that and they give him that on the cross and are they offering to that on the cross? And of course, uh, standard teaching. Standard teaching is that it was, it was to kill the pain. You see, when you don't know what the Bible says because you're a milkman and you don't run a meat market, then you got to come up with all kinds of goofy stuff. And the standard teaching I've heard all of my life is the fact that, that when they gave him the wine minger with mirth, that it was a painkiller to take the pain of the cross. Let me tell you something. The Roman, the Roman government cared nothing about him suffering pain on the cross. Amen. And I want to guarantee you something else over and above the Roman government not caring about it. God was not going to lessen his pain on the cross because if he lessened his pain on the cross, it wouldn't have paid for your pain in hell. So that goes out the window. So let's look and see what we've got here. Now this is the world's wine that they're offering him. This is also found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, in verse 32, it's called the wine of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's called the wine of the poison of asp. It's the fermented stuff. It's the world's wine, not the pure blood of the grape. And yet they're taking the world's wine and they're mingling it with myrrh. Now, I don't know if you remember the three gifts in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, that the wise men brought to Jesus, but they were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And each one of those gifts represents a different aspect of Christ. The gold represented his deity. The frankincense represented his priesthood. And the myrrh represented the fact that he was God's prophet. Now, I want you to notice that when they give him that, he refuses it. You know why? Well, allow me to tell you why. You have to study to get this. You can't be a milkman all your life. Because he's setting a principle and he's setting an example. You cannot mingle. You cannot mingle. Two mingles at the first coming. He mingled the blood of God with the, with the, with the human birth of man for you and me. The world, the devil tried to get him to take the wine, the world's wine, mingled with myrrh, a picture of the prophet. You can't, you can't mingle the world's things with God's things. That's why. He was God's prophet. And taking the wine of this world will not work. Wine will picture everything that this world has to offer. You just can't mix the two. Once you have mingled your soul with God's blood, then trying to mingle it with the wine of this world will never work, no matter how much cheese you eat with it. It just won't happen. 
Christ refused to mingle the fact that he was God's son and God's prophet with the wine of this old world. Now, you think what God's people could see that. You think God's people could get that. But they don't. Instead, they load up the bus loads and they go to places like ChristianMingle.com. And they try to mingle everything in their Christian life with the things of this world. And they try to go to Christian Mingle when it should be called Christian Mangle. And it won't work. You can't take the things that God has given you by the mingling of God's blood with the sinless birth and then take them and mingle them with the wine of this world. I don't see where that's so complicated. Look at the last part of verse 2. She had furnished, also furnished her table. Hath also furnished her table. Now that's a picture of the church age. You see that? When Christ died on the cross, he says it is finished. And he completed his work. And then we move into the church age. And now that the church age has come and Christ's death and the finished work of Christ has put the church age on the map, the table of fellowship has now completely been set and ready to go. Come and dine, the master calleth. Come and dine. You can feast at Jesus' table anytime. Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 4 says that he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Proverbs chapter 3 verse, uh, Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup. That's an old English word for supper, sitting down at the table and eating, fellowshipping, and he with me. So when the church age comes, our table of fellowship is now set. It's complete. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. They didn't have nowhere near the fellowship with God that you and I have. In fact, God gave the answers to them through the priests or the prophets or a, a few other ways that he did it. But he didn't come down to everybody in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel and fellowship with them on a daily basis. He does with you. You know why? Because at the cross of Calvary, he mingled his blood, God's blood, with a sinless birth. He came down and he furnished the table of fellowship. He made it complete. And now you and I, every day of our life, can sit at that table and feast in the fellowship we have with him. Now that's the fellowship now, but I might as well tell you that's also a reference to the coming marriage supper of the Lamb. Luke chapter 14, verse 23, Matthew chapter 22, 10. There's coming a time that we're going to, that fellowship is going to be complete. Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 9 says, Let us be glad, rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. We did that at the judgment seat of Christ, by the way. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Verse 9, and he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. That's why you come down through here, you'll find that not only do we have the fellowship that we have now, but there's coming a day when we're going to sit down when the Lord comes back and we're going to have that marriage consummated and we're going to have that marriage supper. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, at the Last Supper, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine anymore. Hence, I'll drink it new in my Father's kingdom. He's talking about that supper. 
That's why in John chapter 2, after three days, he turns the water to wine, and somebody says, man, I've never tasted any, any grape juice like this in all of my life. The best stuff I ever had. You know why? Because that's a picture. After three days, that's a picture of the Mary's Supper of the Lamb. That's why. But you don't get that by delivering milk. Now look at verse 3. She has sent forth her maidens. She crieth upon the high places of the city. Now you want to mark that word maidens in your Bible if you have your little yellow china marker, maiden china, along with everything else in America. Now that will be a reference, verse 3, to the tribulation period. Look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. It says here, She has sent forth her maiden, and she crieth upon the high places of the city. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 9 or 10 here. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son. Here it comes. And sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them that which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all the things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it. Now, that, that word ready right there, you can mark that in yellow, and you can run that back to Revelation 19, where it said the bride has made herself ready. That's a run reference right back to it. Come, in, come into the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, and one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murders, and burned up their city. And he said unto his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. So go therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as were found, both good and bad, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Now that reference in Matthew 22 was during the tribulation period, time of Jacob's trouble, time of trouble, and God sends out his servants. Now here in Proverbs 9, they're called maidens. And I told you to mark that because they're a maid. And a maid is someone who's not married. A maid is someone that is a virgin. So in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14, we have 144,000 servants going out who the Bible tells you they're virgins. They're maids. That's what you got. And they bring, they bring along with Israel to the marriage of God's son all the Gentiles. They can evangelize and bring in, talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with a marriage supper that follows in the millennium. And that's how this works. So if you want to get this chapter all together and kind of get it set up, here's a summary of it. Proverbs chapter 9, it shows you that it's God's wisdom that will be the key ingredient to building any house. Whether it's the house of Israel historically, your house in an inspirational application, or your spiritual body in a doctrinal application. Then he shows you that God's wisdom will operate through the Bible and through the history of man on earth through seven pillars of truth that not only the Bible sits on, but we're told in 1 Samuel 2 that all of the earth sits on and it will get you through life's problems and protect your walk with God from the evil man and from your adversary. Then he says he proceeds to show you how that this wisdom of God moved down through history in the two main vessels that God will use uh, to reveal himself to man. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and in the New Testament, the body of Christ. 
And again, as I have showed you, that he gives us the, uh, the incarnation, uh, excuse me, the invitation that he always does. He just showed you what he's doing. He gave you a great insight. And I showed you a couple of weeks ago, every time God lays out some great thing about himself, he stops and then he gives an invitation for you to get what he wants to give you. And he does that in verse 4. After he laid all this stuff out, showed you God working, showed you about the mingling, showed you all that God is doing, all that he wants to do, then he comes to verse 4 and he simply says this, Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither, thither. As for him that, that wanteth understanding, she saith unto him. See how that thing is? He gives an invitation. He always does that. He wants so desperately for you and for me to get his wisdom. Because he has a plan for us. He has something that he wants to accomplish. You're in your life, on this planet, in the universe. God has something he wants you to do. But I want you to take note. Smart, educated, self-righteous people need not apply. I want you to know, Bible scholars, Bible experts, Bible critics, Greek and Hebrew scholars need not apply. Only the simple ones. Amen. Only people that are as stupid as we are. Amen. Only as people that are so dumb in life that we simply just believe that God said what he said and meant what he said when he gave us the book that we can trust. Amen. That's who it's for. The simple ones. People who have never been educated out of their intelligence. People who just simply are dumb enough to believe that God wrote a book, a perfect book, and meant what he said, when he said it, the way he said it, to whom he said it to. And that's where we're at. Now look at verse 5 and 6. Come eat of my bread. Here's the invitation. Come eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Forsake the foolish and live and go in the way of understanding. Eat my bread. That's the word of God. That's the manna from heaven. Over in John chapter 6, was the great bread chapter in the Gospels. It talks about Christ being the bread of life. The supernatural gift from God to man. The revelation of God to man in the form of a book that reveals God's picture, God's plan, and everything God wants us to see. Then he says there in verse 5, And drink of the wine which I have mingled. I, I encourage you to get and learn everything you can from God and about God. That would be my advice to you. Remember, the basic practical things in the Bible are not just there to get you through tomorrow, but they are the gateway to the deeper things of God that will reveal more and more to you of who He is and what He's doing and, most important, how you fit into it. And when you get that, my friend, you won't care about tomorrow. You'll just look for today. You'll know that man is to boast not thyself of tomorrow, but thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You won't worry about the problems down the road because you'll be focused on where he's at today and you'll just be so sure in your mind that he's coming today that you won't have to work about, worry about tomorrow. And if he doesn't come today, then tomorrow you'll be so sure he'll be here tomorrow that you won't have to worry about Tuesday. That is a walk by faith and not by sight. That's what the deeper things do. They build you into such a relationship with God and He with you that all you do is focus on what He's got for you to do right now. And you realize that all the things in the future are in His hands. But remember, you can't, the great lesson of Mark 15, 23, you can't mingle the Christian life with the things of this world. So verse 6 says, forsake the foolish and live. 
and go in the way of understanding. I, I like the way he says that, and he says it a number of times in Proverbs, the way of understanding. Notice it's not just coming to church and taking what you like and leaving what you don't like. A lot of people look at church that way. I want you to notice it's not just developing the cliff notes of the Bible. When you're all in college and you had to read a book, the thing that saved your hide was going to the bookstore and getting the cliff notes that you could read some book that was that thick that you could get the cliff note that told you everything you needed to know and that you could skate through it. I understand it. I never got the cliff notes. I always bought the book, the Bible, for dummies. That helped me a lot. But you, you, don't, you don't get there by that. He says that Christianity is a way of life. Christianity is a lifestyle. It's a culture unto itself. A, a life-changing event that will change everything about us to a new way of life. It's based on God's wisdom and instruction of knowing who God is, knowing what he's done, knowing what he's doing today, and knowing how you fit into it. You know, it's always bothered me how the things of this world that it takes years to master, how man pursues them. Bubba was talking about putting a golf thing on for for Kyle, and I think that's an incredible thing. But golf, got to be one of the hardest games to master on the planet. It's also one of the boring playing on the planet. I get that. <laughs> I hate golf. I'd pay $100 that day just to come and drive the carts around, you know, and have fun with that. But I ain't going to play golf. I don't have golf. I, I played golf one time for a short period of time. I almost killed two people, and I quit. Hang up my clubs. But golf is, golf is, a, golf is the boringest game on the planet. It really is. I mean, I, I, you know what? I, I don't know what you big macho men out there makes you feel so big and strong when you beat a little ball to death. I don't get it. I don't get it. But I'm glad you're doing it for Kyle. And I'm glad when you like it. But I'm going to tell you, golf's a tough game. I mean, you got to, it, it looks easy, but you got to have that thing precision. You got to have your back straight, your legs straight, your body straight, your hands at an angle, the hands on a golf club at an angle. You got to keep that perfect thing. I guess I know what I'm talking about. All the way through, you got to keep a form all the way through. And if you break that form, the ball goes left, the goal goes right, or you don't hit it at all. You got to discipline yourself to that. You don't just go out there and say, "Yeah, give me." You know, I, I, lo- I do love the. I've seen the golf clubs now that I could play with. They got the real big ones on the end of them. <laughs> now that's my kind of golf club. I mean, I could hit golf balls, gophers, groundhogs, you know, anything with that. They're huge. I don't know what they do with them. Man, them things look like something that a Fred Flintstone used to play with. But I watch these guys, you know, go out there and they, they work at it. They work at it. They work at it. And I don't understand their terminology. I don't know what a par is. I don't know what a birdie is. I don't know how any of that stuff. I don't know, you know, I'm three under par. I'm four under par. Well, I'm hungry. Let's eat. I, I, don't, I don't get it. But it's a tremendous discipline mental structure game that not only has to focus. It's when you watch the big golf tournaments. Everybody's afraid. You got people, a hundred people from hole to hole. Everybody's afraid to talk. <laughs> Nobody wants to sneeze. Nobody wants to break the guys coming up concentration, you know. And even the, even the, even the moderator whose name, he's in hushed tones. It's such a concentrated game, and a guy has perfect form, and he doesn't break that form in all that he does. I've always admired that. I, I think that's neat. Oh, tennis is another one. Tennis boy, I watched the Venus Williams playing tennis boy. I mean, that girl and her sister can play some tennis. 
I mean, they're out there and they're going to town and knocking that ball back and forth. I mean, it's an incredible physical game. But you got, you know, and it isn't just hitting the ball. You got to have control all the way down your arm and everything you do. You got to have that racket for every time you hit the ball. That racket's got to be set the right way to get that ball to go where you want it to go. It isn't so like we play badminton. Then you got to have the physical stamina to running back and forth and running up front and they hit it over your head. I've seen them. I've seen them come back where the guy, the girl, put it up there and hit the ball over, and the girl ran up, got in front of it, and actually bounced that ball, hit the ball between her leg, and put it back over the there. Well, I'd have, I'd have been in the hospital for a month. It's free with football. I don't care what it is. Basketball. Hockey. Whatever it is. It takes an absolute dedication to that sport. And I've seen it in people with their careers. People who are computer gurus. They spend, they spend a, their whole life. They know everything about a computer. I hate my computer. It, it does whatever it wants to do. It's demon-possessed. It'll change up <laughs> formats, and I don't know what doing with it. It's an electrical world. I mean, you know what? You can be a surface electrician. All oh, the light bulbs out. I can fix it. That doesn't make you an electrician. And show me a little better. You can fix a light switch, put in a fan. But you start messing around with 240, 170, or two-phase, or three-phase. Now you're into the deep things of electricity, which will bury you deep if you don't get it right. <laughs> You, you see it, you see it in, 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 in plumbing. You see it in construction, in building a house. You, you, you look at the thing. This guy is a master builder. He's a master electrician. He's a master plumber. He's a master carpenter. They have spent their whole lives. And it just isn't, this is a pine board. This is a two by four. This is oak. This is this. They got into the depth of it. Why are we so willing to get into the depth of our careers to know the difference in the grain of the wood and the structure and the tools and the two-phase and the three-phase and the four-phase and whatever other phases you've got? But when it comes to the Bible, we just want to be milkmen. We want to stay on the surface. We just want the basic things. But when it comes to sports, when it comes to tennis, when it comes to golf, when it comes to our careers... We want to be everything we can be, and we will get the depth down that we are said we are a master at what we do. But we're, we're ignorant of the Word of God beyond the few basic things that we know. It's like, I just found an incredible gold mine in the Bible, but only taking one or two nuggets and leaving the rest of the mine. Years ago, I wouldn't confess to this to anybody else, but I tell you, I used to love to go to all-you-can-eat places because I wear my cargo pants. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'd stuff those big old cargo pants with rolls and shrimp, chicken. I walk out of there, man, I was, I was 20 pounds heavier than I went in. It wasn't because of what I ate. But it was for a little snack later. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, I'd get those big floppy with the big pockets on them, you know. I even got some of the airborne ones that got the ties on them. They put those ties on them so they could tie them up so when you jumped out of planes, the load wouldn't rip your 
pants pockets off, and there's many a times that Colonel Billy's over there. I had a, you remember Colonel Billy's, don't you? We all you could eat for nine ninety five, and after I left, they upped it to fifteen dollars. But anyway, <laughs> man, I'd fill those pockets up. I had rolls, I had bread, I had all kinds of stuff in there. My wife would get out early; she wouldn't even walk out with me. <laughs> we got to be the same way with the Bible. We ought to wear our cargo pants every time we open that book. And we ought to stuff the Bible. It isn't all about what you get right now. When I went to Colonel Willie's or Billy's or wherever it was, it wasn't about just eating there. I was full when I left. I wanted some for later. And when I get into the Bible, you get in the Bible, sure, we get full. But you know what? I'm going to stuff my cargo pants with everything I can get in that Bible because I want some for later. Listen, if I didn't know that that Bible was the Word of God and Bible Christianity was true any other way, I know it was because of the way men look and treat that book that God gave them. And I'll tell you what the problem is. When it comes to this Bible, the gold mine God gives you, I'm going to tell you, we get so much of it around here, we just take it for granted. I never say anything about this, but I'm getting right now probably, I'd say, eight to ten calls a week. I got a guy in Nebraska, got one in Utah. I got a guy in Ohio, a guy in Oregon, two or three out in California, a couple in Washington State, one in Illinois, Florida. Had one yesterday call me from South Missouri. And they're all cling to our website. Every one of them are thanking me for that website. They're on that website all the time. I get, I get eight or nine calls a week about the Bible. I've got to the point where, and 20 emails, and I hate emails, so I just call them back. But I have to take now a whole night, usually on every other week, and just set aside time to call these people to get their Bible questions in. They're out there with no pastor. They're out there with no church. They're out there with no teaching. They're out there with no fellowship. And believe me, they are hungry for that book. And we have here all that you have anytime you want it, so easily to get all you want anytime you want it, as much as you want, and we get lazy and lethargic about it. Amen. We get taken what God had gave us for granted. Amen. We have so much gold on the walls and gold around here and everything that God has that we get tired of gold. Amen. And I'm telling you, when you love that book, you never get tired of it, and it's the thing that just drives you on. We like the church at Ephesus. We, for, we, 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 we have lost our first love. We left it. We have forgotten the day that we found that book. And so now it's just, a, it, it, you know, we got saved by it. So it doesn't mean anything to us anymore. We don't want to go beyond that. We don't want to find more about God. And God is up there absolutely on the edge of the throne wanting you and I so that he can have that relationship with us. But in so many of our lives, oh, the Bible was so important to us when we were in our crisis, wasn't it? When we were going through our tough time, boy, the Bible was always everything to us. But now the crisis is past. Storm blown over. The sun's coming out. So we discard the greatest book that God gave you that you'll ever see. Oh, we'll apply ourselves to our careers. We'll apply ourselves to our jobs. We'll work hard. We'll never miss a day's work. We'll strive to be the best at what we can do, but we'll never with that book will we allow it to change you for the glory of God. But we'll keep it, come to church, but all about us is the glory of us. 
what we want out of life, what we want to do. It'll never be about for us what God wants to do with us. I've met saved people all my life that I believe were truly saved and on their way to heaven. And all their life, it was just all about what they wanted to do. Never one time in their life did they stop and consider what God wanted them to do with their life. Never one time did they ever get past the four spiritual laws. John 3.16, the basic things of the Bible. They never got to the depth where it really made a difference, not only in their personal life of, of going through the issues of life, but going through their building a relationship with God, that when you get to that point in your life, it doesn't matter what you're facing tomorrow. Boy, I hate to live my Christian life based on worrying about what I got tomorrow. I got to have a verse for it to get me through. I just read a rest in what I already have with him and where we're at with that book that I don't have to worry about what comes tomorrow that I know I just don't have a verse. Bless God, I got the whole gold mine. It'll get me through everything in life. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you today.